Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagen. Hey, Joe. Hello, Emily. It's the first week back from summer. We have two fantastic interviews. We have one with Tim O'Brien that is just all things Trump, as we have so much to talk about as usual. And you did a fantastic interview uh, with Edward Buckles Jr. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, Edward Buckles Jr., is a documentary maker from New Orleans. He has a very personal story to tell in a documentary that's on HBO right now called Katrina Babies. He was 13 years old when Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, hit New Orleans and really upended the way we think about the climate, the way we think about politics, and so much more, and, and about inequality. You know, it turns out this week is the 17-year anniversary of when Kanye West was went on television and said, you know, George W. Bush doesn't care about black people mm. and kind of caused a big stir. I can't believe uh, that was 17 years ago. It was seven. That's the thing. Like Katrina, it's like a, you think that, uh, you know, it seems uh, far back in the rear view, but it's something that really never went away for, you know, hundreds of thousands of people whose lives were affected. And this documentary is about the kind of diaspora of largely African-Americans who were, whose lives were changed in some cases destroyed by Katrina and the reaction to Katrina, the government reaction to it. And uh, it's a very emotional and very candid um, documentary. And we're going to talk to uh, Edward Buckles uh, Jr. all about it. Ugh, um, it's just heartbreaking and can't wait to hear the interview. Speaking of climate, though, uh, and I think there's nothing more boring than talking about the weather, but there is a reason why you and I are talking about it. And um, it's not that it's hot, it's not that it's summer, but it's that there is an issue that's going on in this world that is inescapable and it's horrifying. And the fact that we've been dealing with 100 degrees here over the last few days is just the, the tip of the problem. Yeah. I saw a headline uh, today that, you know, 90 is the new 80 in California. Temperatures rising here on the East Coast where I am. There was a drought all summer long, unprecedented drought. It's actually ending right now. There's just in the last 24 hours, like some of the first rains that we've had. All the green was turned to, it looked like we were living in Arizona here during the summer. All of this is very strange. All of it incredibly alarming. And, you know, your governor, 
uh, Gavin Newsom is really, I have to say, stepped up and made some pretty bold moves on that front. And California is leading the way both in climate change and in trying to do something about it and hopefully lead the country in a, in a different direction. I mean, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act that Biden uh, passed this summer is going to also make some headway in that, in that way, um, which leads us to where we are this fall, coming out of this summer. We are officially, I believe, 62 days away from the midterms. And I have to say, I'm thinking about where we were just in the spring, Emily. Um, we had an episode that I think was called How Screwed at the Democrats. And the entire temperature of the political situation for Democrats has changed. We've evinced a lot of skepticism here and concern and anxiety about whether Democrats were going to be able to step up. And things have changed so quickly in just the course of a month. It's almost head spinning. And Biden you know, seems to have laid the groundwork in a way we weren't anticipating. I mean, maybe he was putting off completing some of this or these breakthroughs happened. The timing of them was uh, pretty ideal <laughs> when you think about it. I don't know how strategic it was, but it's all happening right as the midterms are happening as we're swinging into it. And what's your take? I mean, have you, is your skepticism assuaged about that Democrats can now maybe eke something out here? No, I, I think that we've seen in the last few statewide elections that we've seen over the last few weeks that everything is trending in that direction. My overarching feeling when I'm looking at all of this and I'm seeing this tide shift is how sad is it that what is good for democratic politics is bad for the world and for the country. And uh, the, the only way that you right this country is by terrible things happening. You have Roe being overturned. You have a president's home being searched by FBI agents. You have all these insane, horrible things happening that no one in this country ever thought remotely possible. And those are what happen to be leading to turnout uh, in favor of the Democrats uh, and and Joe Biden sort of hitting his stride. And that feels like a really sorry state of the country and of the thing that is actually potentially going to help Democrats in the midterms. And so that is sort of what has been weighing on me and what my thought process is. I think that you and I have been talking about for a long time that Joe Biden was actually accomplishing a lot of stuff in his first two years in office and they haven't been able to find the message and they haven't sort of been able to not only proactively make a case in the public for what they're doing, but even reactively, they haven't been able to make a case for it. Right. And we've done a lot of head scratching about why that may be. I think for the first time, I don't even think that they are doing a good job of proactively or reactively uh, doing that now. But I think the proof is in the pudding a little bit more right now. I think it's in our face that they have been doing things that are popular with the American public. So I think that if the administration actually does manage to get messages across, then imagine what could happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, these special elections we saw, we had Pat Ryan on here last week. He's the newly elected congressman in my district where I live. And he won against a Republican who was polling ahead of him in every poll. And he had led with the Roe, you know, the Dobbs decision. And 
it's a message that I think is going to be a blueprint for a lot of Democratic politicians across the country. It's about democracy, as Biden has said in his speech, about the, you know, the dangers to democracy, but also, listen, Republicans want to take away your freedom. This is an issue of freedom. You talk about freedom, you like freedom. Well, this is about taking away your freedom. It's not about making you more free. And that's a message that I think has some strength. It's energizing people. And at the end of the day, you know, we do live in a polarized electorate. It's, it's true. But what, what we see is that whoever has the energy, whoever is motivated, whoever has their base, you know, riled up can win, can eke out the wins. And, you know, how energized are Trump Republicans going to be with the same old, oh, they're mistreating Trump rage? Like how, how far can they get with that when there's no there there policy wise? Well, I think it seems like a lot of the people who are deeply in the MAGA camp have sort of abandoned these statewide races and really are focusing on the hyperlocal, the, the school board elections, uh, that that seems to be the place that the attention is going. I also, this has been on my mind a lot as I've been watching these elections. And I know I, I have thought this and written this and so many people have thought this and written this over the last five, six years, but I really am starting to feel this as we sort of seen this Trump enthusiasm wane a little bit and maybe the sparkle of his thing has worn off slightly, but you still see people like um, Mastriano in Pennsylvania who uh, espouses the same exact thing, who, who went to the rallies on January 6th. You see him uh, holding his own in the race in Pennsylvania for governor. And what I just keep thinking about is that Trump was was a leader of an, of an ideology, of a way of thinking that is bigger than Trump. It was there before Trump. It will be there after Trump. And he was sort of um, a symptom of the cause. And I just think that obviously we have to pay attention to Trump. He was a former president. He was a leader of the Republican Party, but I don't think that he's the thing anymore. I think we're like, we're entering a post-Trump universe where we've spent so much of time saying, get rid of Trump. He's anti-democracy. He's anti-everything we as Americans stand for. And I agree with all of that. But if Trump ceases to exist tomorrow, the next person will be Trump plus, And the person after that will be Trump plus, plus, plus. And so Trump is not the root of it. He's the symptom. And I just think that we need to focus on why we got to Trump, not Trump anymore. And right. and it's so easy to talk about him. He's so flagrantly out there. He's so he's nonstop. Uh, he's he's unrelenting, and it is uh, so flagrant and in your face all the time. But it's easy to target him. It's harder to get to the root of what is happening there. And I think that that will be the next stage of reporting, hopefully. Yeah. Well, I do think, you know, we a couple of weeks ago, we had Liz Smith on here. She's a Democratic political uh, operative. And, you know, she really bangs on this idea that if Democrats can learn how to talk to people in the middle and seem like the reasonable party, yes, there is always going to be some Trump or Trump-esque Pat Buchanan right-wing nativist element. There always has been. But the degree to which people see it as like a reasonable alternative to Democrats, that, that has, that's on the wane, I think, right now. 
And, you know, the, the big litmus test for all these sort of pro-Trump like Mastriano and, and others is that uh, do they believe that the election was stolen and so forth? How, how far can they get with this message that uh, of paranoia and distrust? And I just feel like uh, based on what I've seen, the polling, the sort of momentum the Democrats have right now, I do question whether um, that's going to be enough for them to win elections. You know, and I think that's one of the things what I think was potentially brilliant about Joe Biden coming out and being very strong up against, quote unquote, MAGA Republicans, is that he did incite their ire and anger up to that. How dare you call me a semi-fascist? You know, hilarious. But um, that the more he can get them to be inflamed and Trump-like and get angry and act Trumpy, the better it is for Democrats in the long run because it's going to alienate people who are even in the center-right from wanting to vote for these people. How energized are you going to be about a Mastriano if you're like a suburban mom in outside of uh, Pittsburgh or, or, or Philadelphia? I just don't think um, – I think I see some trend lines that are positive for Democrats right now. Now, knock on wood, we've seen Lucy pull the football out from uh, Charlie Brown one too many times, and so – I'm not going to make a full-on prediction here, but I do see some uh, – That I think Joe Biden is uh, – I want to give him more credit for being strategic and, and smart about what's politically than I have in the past, I, I will say. Sure, and I think that uh, we have a perfect person coming on this afternoon to talk all about Trump and the psychology there and how he is able to win over this already bubbling over – portion of the American population. And then we have this fantastic interview on the Katrina babies. And uh, you really understand how these politicians locally, nationally, uh, have an impact on people at all stages of lives, particularly our children. It's a fascinating conversation. I can't wait for you all to hear it. And uh, we will get to the interviews right now. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. We have a very special guest this week, Tim O'Brien, senior executive editor at Bloomberg Opinion, former reporter for The Times. He's also the author of Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald and he is one of the sharpest minds on the subject of the Donald, and we're pleased to have him here, Emily Jane Fox and I. Welcome, Tim O'Brien. 
What a treat. This is a treat for me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're here this week because of the various shoes that have dropped over the last couple of weeks. There was a Mar-a-Lago raid, and now we've been finding out, you know, one step at a time what it is that happened, both Trump's resistance to having these documents discovered in his private residence, forcing the DOJ and the FBI to literally go in and get it, and now where all of this evidence seems to be piling up for a potential indictment, we have this judge, Judge Eileen Cannon of the Federal District Court of Southern or the Southern District of Florida, who has now said it's okay. She's acquiesced to Trump's demand that there be a special master to look at these documents and discern whether this needs to go forward or how it can go forward. Let me just right off the top get your take on this decision because it just dropped this week. Lots of opinions are flying through over the transom right now, most of them kind of alarmed or at least confused by it. What what was your uh, interpretation of it? Let's put it that way. Well, first and foremost, Judge Cannon is a Trump appointee, so it yes. has to be seen through that lens. Um, you know, does this send a signal to other Trump appointees that you should carry the bag for your handler? Um, but even putting that aside, she essentially introduced an executive privilege argument into an attorney-client privilege matter. And, and without getting too boring and technical, that's incredibly important because the executive privilege argument would be viable if Trump was still president, and he's not president. Joe Biden is president. So executive privilege issues shouldn't apply to legal rationale for deciding what the federal government does and doesn't have to do around Donald Trump's documents. Attorney-client privilege is always viable because he's a private citizen like anyone else. So I think Judge Cannon has now introduced this red herring into this debate about how the Justice Department should proceed. And, and it's, I think it represents a fraying of judicial independence. It represents a fraying of, of, of acute jurisprudence. And I think it's a problem. Does that mean it's going to derail everything? I think it slows down the Justice Department. But the reality is this is a very robust and existentially threatening investigation to Donald Trump. And for all of the talk all the time about how Donald Trump has spent a lifetime getting away with it, he has never been subjected to the kind of legal scrutiny and the armada of different uh, investigations that are arrayed against him right now. He may get past these, that that could happen. But he's not used to being where he is right now, and he's not used to the investigators having a clear sense of purpose like these investigators do. Robert Mueller was all over the map. Uh, the two impeachments were politicized. These are pure legal investigations with an evidentiary trail and determined prosecutors around it. And he has the D-team as his lawyers. And well, that's because the, the rest of his lawyers are in prison or under investigation themselves. Or historically weren't paid. Correct. Uh, so, you know, it's hard to get good lawyers when you don't pay them. Sure. Tim, you and I have spent so much time over the last five years talking about getting inside Trump's head and the people around him and his lawyers and, and, and all of these, these matters. And the thing that I want to talk to you about the most, and you wrote a fantastic story about this, is why... Do you think Trump would have taken these documents in the first place? Um, 
I just want to preface that by saying I'm glad that Donald Trump brought us together, Emily. It's, I know. Uh, That's the silver lining <laughs> I don't know here. whether I would have met you otherwise. Um, you know, I, it, it's amazing to me the degree to which the GOP, the propagandists at Fox, and Donald Trump still have an ability to, to get people to focus on the wrong thing. So when the Mar-a-Lago raid first happened, the whole thing was, you know, was was the FBI acting out of bounds? And and then it became all of these different conversations about how that might have occurred. When the core simple thing you're to remember and focus on is, why did Donald Trump take what he took from the White House and what does it mean? And uh, I can't get into his head. And until we know what exactly he took, we won't have a full answer to those questions. But I think, as you know, all the good work you've done on this family, in your own work, Emily, is that there aren't complex motivations for the Trumps. They're grifters. And I think part of it is Donald Trump is a seven-year-old grown old, and he really wanted to be able to keep his model of the mock-up of Air Force One and the Time magazine cover, and he was going to whine if he couldn't get that stuff. And who cares? There's no national security issue there. The two that matter to me in terms of motivation, one is just money. You know, he sees Jared Kushner getting $2 billion from the Saudis and Steve Mnuchin getting $2 billion from the Saudis, and Donald Trump wants his $2 billion, or whatever that number is, at a time when his business empire is saddled with debt and he's in businesses that have been ravaged by COVID. So was there stuff in there he wanted to sell? Quite possibly. Would he have sold nuclear secrets to raise some money? Sure, he could do that. I don't know that he did. But we have to really button down whether there's a national security threat here. And then I think the other thing is reputation laundering and covering up an evidentiary trail. What Was there stuff in that document that, in the documents that he took, that presented a story he didn't want told about any number of things? No, I'm, I'm so glad that you, you phrased it like that because, you know, you start to see people with tinfoil hats on Twitter talking about, oh, well, he took these on purpose so that the FBI would execute these search warrants of Mar-a-Lago and that would gin up his base and that would really dovetail with him announcing that he was running for president and that this is all a grand strategy. And that's why he didn't answer the subpoena the first time he wanted this to happen. And my thinking about Trump and everyone who he's related to is the simplest answer is always the answer. And I think that you just laid out those simple answers just perfectly. And that the the notion that there is a bigger 4D chess happening has never been the case, right? He can barely play hopscotch, you know, <laughs> much less three-dimensional chess. Yeah. So this latest turn with the judge wanting to appoint a special master, my interpretation of it is it's a speed bump, but it's not going to like kill the DOJ's or the FBI's investigation. Um, and on the other hand, there I, we read in the Times and we know that the, there is a certain 60-day rule before a midterm that you wouldn't indict somebody uh, with an election coming up in, in, you know, in order to avoid it having, having it be politicized. Do we think that ultimately what Trump wants to do is politicize this as much as possible? And I'm curious what your political interpretation of all this is. This is actually going to generate political energy for him to fight the FBI? Because it seems like a like it's not going to go as far as he would like it to go. Well, I think, you know, anytime he engages in, in performance art like this, it energizes the MAGA base who feel that the entire world is out to get Donald Trump. And then that sort of plays out. 
and settles down and and I think becomes inconsequential. What really matters is what moderate Republicans and independent voters think about all this. And I think they're they're sick of Donald Trump. That's right. And I think Donald Trump assembled a coalition in 2016 because other Republicans couldn't unite the other part of the vote that didn't care for him within the Republican Party. I don't think that's going to happen this time. He, he wasn't able in 2020 to get over the top. I think that's going to be hard in, in 2024 for him. Um, he's had a mixed track record on the campaign trail for the midterms. He, it hasn't been, I think he's had a significant influence in certain kinds of races where MAGA voters held sway. But I don't think he was the Midas touch across the board. And I, I mean, I think voters, I think Trump is a negative for the Republican Party in a general election. And he's a can be a force to be reckoned with in the primaries. But I think DeSantis feels like he's going to be out in front of Trump and that he can be Trump in a nicer suit. Uh, I also think that voters are getting energized by other things like the Dobbs ruling. I think that's energized women across the board. And thank goodness it has. Thank goodness that people are getting involved in the process because Republicans are pursuing policies that are existential threats. Um, you know, what happens to the economy? What happens with inflation? That kind of stuff, too, may end up being bigger factors than Trump. And I think Mitch McConnell just much, must regard Trump as a nightmare that won't go away. Yeah. I mean, to have Bill Barr on Fox and Andrew McCarthy, their like big legal mind there, both agreeing with mainstream press and, and mainstream legal experts, it's almost makes your head spin a little bit today. I was looking at that thinking, well, they're all in agreement. I expected to hear a contrary, some sophistry from from the right about how to make this okay, but nobody's agreeing on it. And the, you know, when you have like a chunk of the Republican Party and the entire other party wants Donald Trump gone, he's not in a position of strength. Obviously, it's almost like he's in a tar pit, and every move he makes just makes him sink more. But if only they had spoke their minds, had spoken their minds like that while they were still in power. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, that's that's not how power works anymore. That's no, that's, it's not. You're exactly that's right. That's not how people behave. Tim, you you started off when we first. Um, started chatting today, you were talking about all the other investigations that Trump is facing. And of course, this FBI uh, execution of search warrants and what the DOJ is doing is top of mind. It's most recent. It seems certainly furthest along and most looming over his head and over the public consciousness. But there's a lot of other stuff going on. And I know that you've been tracking this closely. I'm, I'm wondering what you are looking at uh, in terms of the other things that he is facing. How serious are they? Uh, I know we have stuff in New York, stuff in Georgia, all sorts of stuff. And as someone who's tracking this closely, tell me what you're paying attention to. Well, I think Georgia, I think Georgia is a very substantial investigation. There's a smoking gun. Donald Trump is on tape saying like a 19th century word healer, go out there and find me those 11,000 votes. Lindsey Graham has been pulled into the orbit of that one. Um, Rudy Giuliani is enmeshed in that one. I don't think the investigators down there would try subpoenaing a senator, a U.S. senator, and Donald Trump's personal lawyer unless they had the goods. Well, again, we'll have to watch that one play out in court, but there's a electoral fraud in that case, and, and, the, and the fact pattern seems clear in that one. I think the January 6th committee has done yeoman's work, and they've now produced rafts and rafts of damning, damning information about Trump trying to foment a coup and the people who helped him do that. We know there's a grand jury convened now in the District of Columbia 
looking at the way that Mike Pence was pressured and, and the whole national effort to create false slates of electors. That, that's before a grand jury. So clearly the DOJ now has a, a, a meaty and robust exploration of the things that the January 6th committee has surfaced. So what I'm watching for there is when does Merrick Garland indict the, the former president? Around that, that's what I'm watching for. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a legal issue anymore. In that case, I think it's the only thing halting decisions in this are political, not legal. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to think the Manhattan DA's investigation was the most robust one out there, but I think that's just, I think that's going to be a much narrower prosecution that I don't think is going to threaten Trump, but it may threaten the Trump organization as will the New York State Attorney General's investigation. It also seems like whatever Merrick Garland does is going to part of his calculation has to be timing and and the politics. He's he's had navigated the politics really cleanly so far, but there's going to be so much headwinds, political headwinds. And you know, I think um Lindsey Graham's comments signaled that you know, they're willing to generate actual street violence to keep the the law at bay. And a lot of it, this is going to be who has the guts to pull the trigger on these indictments, whether it's in Georgia or any of these places. With, I think, the ultimate issue being, you know, the argument is made that, oh, well, if you prosecute a former president, it will inevitably be seen as politicized. And that's bad for the republic and it's bad for our institutions. And, and I think it's worse for democracy and our institutions to essentially say the president's above the rule of law. Like, how many crimes does Donald Trump have to commit before we just say this is a problem and he needs to be held accountable for it? It's in multiple states. It's in multiple jurisdictional venues. And it's, it's, it's a, a cornucopia of different crimes. Yeah. Well, doesn't this just entice people who are uh, lawless to run for office and it gives, gives the people who we absolutely don't want to have a shield have a shield? Yes. And it's a bad example globally, too. Mm -hmm. Well, um, 10 million percent, but traditionally, uh, good criminals tend to be charismatic, right? And so charismatic <laughs> people tend to win the presidency. If you're having charismatic crooks run for office as a way to shield, I mean, Tim and Joe, actually all three of us uh, watch this very closely. We all know Michael Avenatti, who was trying to run for president as he was allegedly, well, now he's been convicted of, of crimes in Defrauding his clients. two different cases and is facing a third one. Uh, and this was a man who was basically trying to run for highest office in the land in order to outrun uh, the fraud he was, he was perpetrating. And I feel like this is the kind of example we're setting up here. Yeah, well, I've often said that by every moral, ethical standard and legal standard uh, invented by humans, Trump has broken them or evaded them in some way. And at some point, you have to make the law mean something. Like we've reached the outer limits of what it is to means to break the law. And, and, you know, people talk about the law being Swiss cheese. Trump has shown us every hole in it because he's walked through them. And at some point, if the line isn't drawn, uh, the consequences, like you say, they're, they're global. This is why we have laws is so we have some clarity around what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior because left to our own devices, we'll blow it. And if you say, well, okay, we have laws, but it doesn't apply to the select group of people who are completely lawless and threat our, threaten our most basic values, then we've lost, we've lost a tether to reality, I think, that we can't accept. 
Well, there's no one we would rather talk to uh, about reality and <laughs> about the the grave state that we are in and to, to Trump watch uh, with then then you Tim and we are so grateful for you stopping by here and for imparting your wisdom. Please tell us that you'll come back and share it with us. I would be flattered to come back, and it's always a pleasure hanging out with the Vanity Fair crew, and you too, especially. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, guys. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is gonna get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. We have a very special guest on Inside the Hive this week, Edward Buckles Jr., documentary maker from New Orleans. He's got a new HBO documentary called Katrina Babies. Katrina, the hurricane that nearly wiped out New Orleans in 2005. Some people have forgotten about it, but the people who were impacted by it have not and cannot. The news business, as we know, tends to move on. But Edward Buckles Jr., his family, his friends, the people he knows, all African Americans, they can't forget Buckles was 13 years old at the time, and he's gone back and talked to the people whose lives were upended and permanently altered, the Katrina babies, to find out what they felt, what they experienced, what it all means, not just for them, but for us as Americans. Edward Buckles Jr., welcome to Inside the Hive. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me. I'm super, super happy to be here. Yeah, well, I'm I'm super happy to have you because I saw your documentary. It was incredibly affecting it was emotional, it was raw, but it was also just really beautiful, beautifully made. And um, in the documentary, you you talk about, uh, obviously, your own personal experiences, but you also talk about the evolution of this documentary and, like, how it kind of, you know, the idea for it came to be. Maybe you can take me through how you came to decide to make this documentary and how it evolved. Absolutely. I was 13 years old when Hurricane Katrina happened. And, you know, I always say that the development and research for this project started then without me even knowing. You know, it started when, you know, everything was happening in 2005 and once I returned to a post-Katrina New Orleans. And just growing up as a child in a post-Katrina New Orleans, it was it was it was so intense. Um, It was not a place for like a young person to be. And I noticed how. Uh, the impact of Katrina was weighing heavily on myself as well as my peers. And I I noticed that at a very young age. You know, um, actually, my my end to storytelling was because of that post-Katrina living condition, because of the fact that I was starting to get into trouble and my mom threatened to send me to boot camp. And I was like, my hell nah, I'm not going to no boot camp. And, you know, she was like, well, I'm going to give you a few weeks to find out what you want to do. And... I heard this 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 radio ad for a local theater. And, you know, I said, well, you know what, Ma? I want to act. I'll act. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I wound up going to this acting school called Anthony Bean Community Theater. And there I just learned all about storytelling, you know, like black stories and black arts. And, 
you know, I got introduced to the arts. And by the time, you know, I went to college and, you know, I started to study theater and film and I fell in love with film and I took a documentary class. And a question was proposed to me, um, you know, if you can make a documentary, what would it be about? And at the time, I didn't know, you know, it, it, it took me a while to figure it out. But then one day I got a call from my cousin Tina, who's in the doc. And, you know, she was just very, very sad. And be, like, because she was still displaced and it, it it was holiday season. And, you know, she heard that I was into theater and film. And she said, you know, one day I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a let you make a movie about my life. And she went on to tell me about Hurricane Katrina and like what she and her children went through. And like at that moment, it clicked. You know, I was like, yo, like, what are the parallels between what children like my cousins and myself went through? Um, and like during Hurricane Katrina and the, the uh, current state of New Orleans youth um, in this post-Katrina New Orleans, because it didn't seem like anybody else was talking about it. It seemed like, you know, the adults and the uh, the uh, local government and the uh, local press, they were just blaming the uh, children for how our trauma was surfacing. So right. initially, I just wanted to draw parallels between the horrible state of the New Orleans youth in New Orleans and what happened in 2005. Yeah. Well, yeah, you get really into this sort of anxiety of living in modern New Orleans and how that trauma is really kind of like baked into, you know, the bodies and minds of the people there in ways that they're not even aware of. And that, you know, so much of the, so much of it's unresolved. And one of the things I love about your movie is you, it's also about you making the movie. It's got two levels to it. And it's about the power of film as a way of expressing what you're all of this stuff, you know, and a lot of the people in the film have never talked about it, right? It's like, you know, it was such an interesting moment when you're talking to your mother and and she said, yeah, I would ask you guys, how are you doing? How are you doing? And you, there, you know, it was like, we're fine, right? But they weren't fine. You weren't fine. And, and in many ways, it's like, these people have never been asked how they feel, right? And to then see it, is incredible. There's actually a moment where somebody says, you know, nobody's ever asked me and they, and she begins to cry. Um, who, who, can you remind me who that was? Yeah, that was Maisha Williams who, who, you know, said that for the first time, actually, you know, again, when I first started this process, I was only trying to draw parallels like between the uh, current state of New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina. I didn't realize that children had never spoken about this. Uh, I didn't realize that, that uh, I would be the first person to ever ask them, how are you doing when it comes to Hurricane Katrina? So um, that moment that moment was very special in this journey for this project because starting a project like this at such a young age, you know, I questioned myself a lot. You know, I, I, I questioned if this was the right journey to be taken, if this story was important, you know, if, you know, I should be the one telling it, you know? And when she told me that, that gave me validation, you know? When she told me that, yo, this is my first time ever, ever speaking about this, that gave me validation, you know, to keep this journey going. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a really powerful moment. And first of all, the, the film opens just to give people a visceral feel of what, it, what, this, what we're talking about and what this means is like literally helicopter, Coast Guard helicopters, like putting people in baskets from their rooftops surrounded by water and then hauling them through the air, you see these vulnerable children in these baskets being hauled off their roofs up to the helicopters. And it's really like a 
extraordinary kind of reminder of like how severe the situation was. And then, of course, you in the middle of the film on CNN, we're seeing, you know, the Silver Dome and all the people that have ended up there. And it's this sort of it's really it was an atrocity, right? What happened and, and the kind of like the dehumanizing environment and circumstances that so many were forced into. And you really directly tell that story through a character named Ariana, who is a trans uh, woman who was a, a young boy at the time, but incredibly bright and, and expressive about what they were going through, talking about his grandmother who needed insulin shots and really appealing to viewers of television. Hey, what's going on here? This is fucked up. We need you, right? Um, tell me about, about Ariana. Well, yeah. In in 2014, I believe, was when I first started just physically working on a project. Um, yeah. And one of the first things I did was I Googled Children of Katrina, you know, yeah. just to see just to see what was out there, just to see sure. any articles that had been written, any specials. Um, it's interesting because like there were not many, which pissed me off a lot. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, obviously... Charles Evans, you know, this kid in a blue SpongeBob shirt with his face plastered into the camera, um, just talking fearlessly, um, saying things that yeah. saying things that the adults couldn't even say, right? Like putting the entire country in its place, right? Um, and when I saw that, I was like, this kid is a hero, you know, I gotta find this kid. I use Facebook as my, <laughs> as my, yeah, uh, sure. you know, best friend for this. And, you know, I, I, I just screenshotted Charles Evans and, and, you know, I put it on Facebook and say, hey, if anybody can help me find this kid, it would be incredible. And, you know, uh, actually someone tagged Ariana and Ariana commented on it was like, hey, you know, it's, it, it's me, you know, and that's when we started our journey to making her a part of this project. And, you know, yeah. It was really important for me to put her in it because, again, if we want to talk about, you know, what I'm doing by, you know, giving a voice, you know, to my people and like giving a voice to the children um, who who experienced Hurricane Katrina, Ariana did it at nine years old, and you know that's pretty that's pretty heroic. Oh yeah, well, and it also spotlights the kind of distortions of the media and the way the media treated it. You know, talking about people looting the city. Looting what city? You know what I mean? The city was like a desperate place, right? And, it's underwater. You know, like, the word looting. Yeah, it was underwater. And looting has a connotation, right? Of like racial connotations that have been used throughout the ages, right? And it really shows you, uh, you know, even up to Black Lives Matter, like what a, you know, constantly this is a refrain in the media. And in this moment, it was happening in almost the ridiculous way because you're like, what? You know? And it's interesting, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, there's this piece that didn't make the film. Um, as I was watching this archival footage, there's this guy who took a waterbed out of a store, right? Yeah. And he was going to use it as a boat to flow to his next destination because the water was so high. And, and the news reporter was only focused on the fact that he stole it. Yeah. And I was like, this is the problem with our country. Like it's, 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 yeah. it's like yeah. he's surrounded by water, but the problem yeah. is that he stole something to float on. <laughs> right. Ironically, a waterbed. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. 
yeah, yeah. It, it, so, well, that was interesting. And you, you also include, by the way, the uh, iconic clip of Kanye West saying, you know, George Bush hates black people, which was like, I remember when that happened and it was such a like, you could see it coming out of him almost in a desperate way. Like, you know, people, how do I just say it in a real sharp way that people gets people's attention, right? Kanye West is good at that. And so, and, but it was such a, you know, an iconic moment and one that reminded people of the, you know, Katrina is a social and historic tragedy, but it, the main theme of it is race. Yeah, it was the first moment, it was the first moment because like something else that Kanye says, you know, obviously, obviously George Bush doesn't care about black people. That's the, that's like the tag, like that's the title, yeah. right? That's the, right. that's the most popular piece of that um, interview. But something that always stuck with me um, and like hit me at that time was when he was like, you know, black people are always getting the slowest help possible. And, you know, that's right. when he said that and, you know, when I'm sitting there waiting for help, when I'm sitting there trying to figure out what's next, when our cousins are in, in New Orleans waiting for help, you know, that was in that moment because, like, I was a huge Kanye West fan. You know, um, growing up, I was, a, I was a huge Kanye West fan. So, you know, at first I was in this experience thinking that, oh, you know, it's, it's just by chance. It's an it's a unfortunate situation. It's a, it's a natural, you know, hurricane. It's out of our control, you know. Um, but, like, when he said that, you know, I remember the entire house started to clap because, like, like they were validating that statement. And like, you know, for the first time, even if I didn't think deeply about it, I was just like, oh, this shit is about race. You know, this shit is about resource allocation, you know. That's right. And, this, and the slow response from the federal level, you know, the implication of that lack of response was that we don't have a dog in this fight. You know what I mean? Like, we don't really care about these people or we don't have, you know, there's no, our interests are not there. I think, you know, that's pretty much uh, understood now in retrospect. I think people understand that. But, you know, the other part of this is that you describe in the documentary the kind of like, first of all, you tell really beautiful storytelling about what happens to individual people as they are forced out from the experience they had, you know, the night before it hit to they end up in Houston or they end up in Lafayette or or, or other places that you describe. And... um, the other aspect of it, though, is that uh, what happened to the city? What happened to the city they came back to? It was, it was devastated, and, and in the way it was rebuilt wasn't necessarily, wasn't at all in some ways, um, rebuilding the lives of the people who had lived there. That's right. Right? It, it was rebuilt so that some of those people were, you know, left out uh, and never to be able to come back. Now, I will note, though, that also, though, the people as adults— who experiences as children that you put on camera seem to be well. They're first of all they're really beautiful, and they seem to have lifted themselves up in some ways. You know what I mean? Some, not all of them. Some of them seem like they're still struggling, right? So there's a variety of people there, and it's so marvelous that you let them do the storytelling. By the way, but um, describe what you think New Orleans is today as a result of all of that. Yeah. So. It's 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 interesting because the New Orleans that we knew didn't come back. The rich, cultural, family-oriented place that we once lived, where we owned our neighborhoods, where it was only us in our neighborhoods, 
where where many of us didn't leave our neighborhoods and we went to school in our neighborhoods, right? We can afford the groceries in our neighborhoods. Like, like, like when I say that the New Orleans that we knew is gone, it's because that is gone. Our New Orleans is is fading, right? Because of the fact that it's becoming more about business. It's becoming more about, you know, the economical element to all of this, right? But it's important for me to say that we are still there. There, there are still black people still there. You know, a lot of us are still there, even if we aren't in our neighborhood. So as long as we are there, it's going to be our city in a way. But, you know, the New Orleans that we live in today, people got displaced after Katrina, right? You know, mm-hmm. I have family members who have never come back. Um, Tina, who's in the film, and, you know, my cousins, her children, they are still displaced in Shreveport. And, you know, I say displaced because that came from her mouth. She still considers herself as displaced because she was not able to move back after the storm because of what happened, the impact of Hurricane Katrina. Now, if you take that element and then you also think about the fact that we are also being displaced in New Orleans, right? So there are very few people that are living in the neighborhoods that they are actually from. Very few people that are living in the neighborhoods that they were actually born in. They are neighborhoods that they once called home, that their families and like their family history rooted from. Because of the fact that those neighborhoods are becoming more expensive. Those neighborhoods, their property value is going up. Like, for example, Tina's house that I talk about in the film, that house is worth $1 million today. Wow. I literally just like looked it up. It's, it's worth $1 million dollars. That was once upon a time a $23,000 house. Yeah, wow. You know? And that's why Tina says I'm displaced because, like, I can't come back home. You know, like, where I'm going to stay at? Where am I going to get groceries at? You know what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. you know, that's what's happening with, again, we're still there. And, like, we still love our city. But what's happening with New Orleans right now is that it is being priced out. You know, sometimes I call it being pimped out, you know? And what that's doing is... You know, as Sierra says, so so great in the film, what does that do to identity? And, you know, I can relate to that statement. You know, when my cousins weren't able to come, I had a bit of a identity crisis at, a very, at, at, at age 13 throughout my upbringing because of the fact that I didn't have my cousins anymore. I didn't have my tribe. I didn't have my, 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 my best friends. So I turned to negative influence, you know? Um, and then, like, you know, if you think about what's happening with the kids today, a lot of kids don't even know where they're from. They don't know much about, you know, their neighborhoods and, you know, their family roots. And if you don't know where you come from, how can you possibly know where you're going? So gentrification impacts so much more than just, you know, us having to move out of the neighborhoods. It impacts identity. One of the things the documentary really brings home is that the story of your neighborhood and your town is so much a part of your identity. And that story was broken by Katrina. And then everybody's trying to rebuild their story. Right. And uh, but they got to it's hard to rebuild your story if you haven't resolved the brokenness 
and the impact of that brokenness, right? And tried to integrate it into, I mean, that's, your film is really a lot, it's also about you. It's about your own journey and trying to repair that. And you're doing it through filmmaking. And that's why I said at the top that, you know, filmmaking and expression is such an important part of this. And is there hope for New Orleans? I mean, where do you find a silver lining? Because New Orleans is about overcoming, right? It always has been, you know? Yeah, it is. It is. And, and, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely address that statement um, after this. But to answer your question, I am very hopeful. Um, at first I was saying, you know, optimistic, but no, no, I, I am very hopeful. And, and I believe that, you know, we are going to heal, we are going to thrive, and we are going to continue to rebuild our New Orleans in the way that we see it. Um, you know, I think that by even making this film, it's been beautiful and painful in some ways to see how many people feel heard and feel seen and now feel motivated to want to heal themselves and to want to create a better life and like a better New Orleans for themselves. I feel very hopeful. I feel very inspired about that. You know, I think that to address the statement of, yeah, like New Orleans is about overcoming, but something that we hit on in the film is also like this double-edged sword of that. You know, it's the double-edged sword of resilience. You know, I think that for the longest time, New sure. Orleans people and like, you know, black people in general, we've been expected to just overcome and expected to just bounce back and quote unquote rebuild. And, you know, I think that we take pride in that. You know, I think that we love that about the, uh, ourselves. We celebrate that. In some cases, we lean on that. But I do want people to understand that in some cases, resilience could be a form of trauma, you know, because like, you know, I think that sometimes we have to stop being put into situations, like in inhumane situations that we have to be resilient against. Well, I get your point. Yeah, you don't. Why should you be having to overcome to begin with? So much, like, 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 yeah. like, 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 almost every day is us having to be resilient. Like, you know, like resilience should be like, like just like a little secret, secret portion that like we have in our pockets. It shouldn't be what we're taking in every day. I, I, yeah, I get you 100%. Well, I think that making this movie is a very positive first step in kind of like establishing exactly what you're saying for everybody to understand. And, you know, it really is like a, um, about justice uh, on some level, although it doesn't hit you over the head with that, which it's really about, let's start with human beings and talk about human stories. And, um, I won't give away the ending, but there's a real like trippy ending that I really loved and I think was like kind of a killer idea on your part. <laughs> Twitter has been giving away the ending and like and like I am so upset, but like they're being so sweet about it and like and they love it, so I don't want to say anything, but you know, people on Twitter have been giving like like giving away the ending and like that's been bothering me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not gonna give it away here on the podcast, but suffice to say that it's like um really creative and kind of like a it made me choke up a little bit. I was like, oh wow, that's that really gets to the point right away. And it actually says something about you as a filmmaker because it was a really novel idea and really cool. Um, yeah, well, 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 look, first of all, I gotta give like a lot of credit to my, you know, to my team, my 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 producing and story team, you know. Audrey Rosenberg, you know, Chike Oza, Becky Title, and 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 then also like, you know, Gabe Rhodes and and my editor Luther Clements. Like it's it's it, we went back and forward 
about that for so long. We went back and forth, like, because it was so hard to crack, right? You know, yeah, yeah. We, we didn't know what voiceover to put with it. We, we didn't know, like, you know, what exactly to say to it. Okay, when do we expose up? I don't want to give it away. I, yeah, you're right. But, <laughs> sorry, but, 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 but my team and I literally went into the last second and we finally cracked that. Literally, I think it was the, the last two weeks of the edit. So, uh, you know, right. I got to think. Well, I'll, I'll, in composite or just in a sort of broad way, I'll say it is about your home and whether or not you actually are able to return to it or not. And whether that's an achievable thing, and 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 in some well, in some ways, the tragedy of that, the emotional impact of that. Um, listen, Edward Buckles Jr., uh, documentary filmmaker, Katrina Babies on HBO. It's out right now. You can just go on HBO and stream it right now, and you should. Um, I'm so grateful for you coming on the podcast, and thank you for making it. And uh, you know, it also reminded me. And I've been to New Orleans and, and since then, but uh, it reminded me of how much, despite all the heartache and that version of New Orleans, which I think is very important to know about and to experience, um, it reminded me of how important New Orleans is to all of us. And, but we got to know the full story. And you've told a big chunk of it. And I really, really am grateful for that. So thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and thank you for this conversation. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.